When I talk about a spice, I talk about its origins, its history, how it's grown, how it's processed. Because I feel if someone has a fully understanding of a spice, then they will get more enjoyment out of using it. This is The Producers. I'm Danny Vallant. When you talk about herbs and spices in Australia, it won't be long before you talk about Ian Herbie Hempel. The co-owner of Herbie Spices has been immersed in food since he was a small child and he's built a life and career in flavour that's been fruitful, not just for himself, but for all those who have learnt and enjoyed alongside him. Enthusiastic and endlessly interested, Herbie is as adept at chatting about the history of cloves or coriander as he is about how to use them. My name is uh, Ian Hemphill and I have a business called Herbie's Spices. I've been involved in the spice industry for most of my life because my mother and father had a herb nursery that they started in the mid-1950s. My mother, whose name was Rosemary Hemphill, was the first Australian to have a book published on herbs by Angus and Robertson. And mum and dad went on to write many other books on herbs and spices. So I grew up with them all around me. And although you don't really appreciate entirely what your parents are doing, you absorb a lot quite subliminally by osmosis. And for that reason, I suppose I've continued to work in the in the herb and spice industry. And of course, my friends at school thought having parents with a herb business was pretty odd. And so I got the nickname Herbie. And the nickname Herbie has stuck with me Ever since, I worked in the family business for some years until my parents retired and sold their property. I went to Singapore. I managed the spice company up in Singapore, came back to Australia, worked in the corporate world, still in the spice industry for about six years. And 26 years ago, my wife and I, Liz, uh, started Herbie Spices um, in Roselle, Sydney suburb of Sydney, and we just wanted a little business that would supply and source the best culinary herbs and spices you could get to make special blends for people and to provide information. And for that reason, I have also written books on spices. Um, current one in print is the Spice and Herb Bible 3rd Edition, published in Canada, sold in the US, UK and Australia. Uh, and um, this is something that Liz and I thought oh, a little spice business, you know, we will never need any staff and it'll just keep us busy into our dotage. And as it turned out, of course, the business grew. We had lots of lovely customers and lots of people in the food media were very interested in what we were doing and the business grew so much so that we ended up with a facility up on the central coast, which is where we do all the manufacturing and grinding and blending, etc. cetera. Uh, and we have 20 lovely people working for us. And it's not the little business we always thought it would be, but, uh, but we love what we do and we still find the spice industry fascinating. Um, Liz and I take groups of people to India uh, every couple of years, take about 18 people on what we call a spice discovery tour to the country that we, we love greatly. And um, yes, and we sort of see ourselves continuing to do it for quite a while yet, I suppose. Ian's schoolmates were the first ones to dub him Herbie, and that was because his mum and dad worked in herbs. 
What was this herbaceous childhood like for the young Master Hemphill? Well, basically, um, back then, they were, it was primarily a herb nursery to start with. So uh, they were, you know, selling all of the usual herbs, you know, thyme, sage, marjoram, parsley, oregano, mint, uh, bay trees, etc. Um, and then, of course, as the interest grew, Dad started to import some spices from overseas. And so the range grew from initially, you know, under the brand, the brand was called Somerset Cottage. And uh, we probably had about you know, 15 items and that grew within a fairly short period of time to around about 50 different varieties of herbs and spices and, and different blends. And one of the things that was very interesting was Dad used to make, not a culinary product at all, but he used to make something called potpourri. And which is a blend of various fragrant herbs, some spices, some essential oils. And we used to grow rose geraniums, lemon-scented geranium, peppermint-scented geraniums. We would pick rose petals, um, lavender, lemon verbena, and Dad would dry all these. So this was all sort of going on. I was, you know, helping. I'd earn pocket money helping Dad pick things. And he would make this potpourri, which, which was an amazing thing. But what saddens me greatly is that, like so many things, to me, this is a key example of how things, when they become overly popular, become devalued. And potpourri was something that was quite amazing that Dad used to make. You can imagine our horror when we started to see a potpourri going into the market and the majority of ingredients were coloured wood shavings. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> Quite amazing. And then, of course, what comes out? A pressure pack can of room deodorizer called potpourri. <laughs> so here is something that was a traditional thing that gardeners would have made themselves at home for probably centuries. Dad made this amazing potpourri. And yet, here's a classic example of something truly beautiful, handmade, done with care, completely devalued. <laughs> and, you know, that's one of the things that, that saddens me a little bit. I actually did write a paper for the Oxford Symposium of Food and uh, Drink um, a few years ago. Unfortunately, I couldn't attend because it was during COVID, so I had to do the presentation online. Um, but my paper was basically the perils of popularity and how herbs and spices have become so popular, but you look at what is being sold as spice blends and things like that in supermarkets and everywhere. They're full of salt, they're full of colours, they're full of flavours. They're not true spice blends. And I think, you know, that sort of race to the bottom in the food industry is really sad. And I think, and it doesn't do, it's no, doesn't, it's no benefit to consumers. It might make something cheaper, but it's not as good. <laughs> Starting a business is never easy, but Herbie's took off pretty quickly. Many Australians heard about Raz El Hanout for the first time and beelined for the new Sydney store that sold it. Trickiest time was the day we opened. <laughs> because everyone was saying to us, you've got to be crazy, there's no way in the world you could, you know, survive, you know, with a spice shop. And um, we, I think we took $45 on day one, 
and Liz and I lay in bed and we thought, what on earth have we done? <laughs> we've sold our home, we've bought a premises, we've, you know, what are we going to do? The next day, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, double page spread, featured Chrissy Manfield and Alex Herbert, and it was called The Spice Girls. And they were talking about Brazil Hanout and all sorts of different spices. And in the top right-hand corner, there was a tiny little square, and it just said, the Hemphill family have opened a new spice shop in Roselle called Herbie Spices. <laughs> and we were flat to the boards. The, yeah, and yeah, that was great. And really, I suppose the next high was within a few weeks where Liz and I kept saying to each other, will people notice the difference? Will people buy them once because, oh, yeah, you know, that seems we'll give that a go. But, but will they notice the difference? Within three weeks, we had people coming back saying, can't believe the difference. I've been cooking with the spices I bought and they're just fabulous and all that. So to us, that was, that was really great. Um, and then over the years, we have been very fortunate. We've had lots of lovely people supporting us, people like Tetsuya and Neil Perry and many of the other chefs, um, Joy Joshi, lots of lovely people. The whole food scene, all the people involved in food, to me, there's a tonality primarily of caring and sharing. You, you don't prepare food just for your own personal satisfaction. You prepare food because you want to share it with other people. I remember Margaret Fulton saying years ago, I've known Margaret since I was about 12, and I remember she was saying, you know, exactly that, that, that food is about preparing something for others. And I think overall, that's a tonality that, that makes the industry so positive. So we've been very lucky. And I've had a few, you know, highs. There was a, a crazy TV show that went to about 50 episodes called Surprise Chef. And they got me to do five-minute segments talking about herbs and spices and that was a lot of fun, and that helped to raise our profile quite a bit. And then, of course, the response to my books, my first book, Spice Notes, that was published in 2000 by Pan Macmillan, uh, that was very well received and did extremely well. And then that book um, became the Spice and Herb Bible, published by a Canadian publisher and now sold in uh, overseas as well. I suppose the hardest times have been when we've got to a stage of growth and we've actually had to say to customers, because we only sell to specialty stores, we won't sell to the big supermarket chains at all. We only sell to privately owned specialty stores. But we've gone through periods when we've said, look, we're sorry, we can't supply you. We're flat to the boards. We're at capacity. There's no way we're going to let down our current customers if you don't mind, we'll get back in touch with you maybe in three months when we feel we can look after you. That's been a hard thing to do, to actually turn people away when you've got a business that you want to grow. Um, but it has worked well for us and they've come back and we have lots of, of very good loyal retailers who sell our things and, of course, selling on online as well. Um, so there haven't been... Touch wood, fingers crossed. There haven't been any what I would call major disasters. They're all the usual things that happen in business, you know. <laughs> you know, having to sort of go through all the hoops of becoming HACCP certified and doing all those things. 
they're the sort of things that sort of become a little bit of a, a pain in the neck. But, you know, you have to do them. And partly it's regulatory, but partly it's also making sure your product is always going to be good, fit for purpose and, and right for your customers. So, uh, yeah, we have. We've, we've, we've been lucky. There's, there's no doubt. Of, we've worked pretty hard, but we've been lucky. <laughs> Spices are woven in with world history. Key players in trade routes, empire building and culinary blending. Ian Hemphill doesn't just know spices, he also knows the epic stories behind them. The interesting thing about the spice trade is that it's had an enormous effect on really the development of the world as we know it now. It was a cause for a lot of exploration because the main thing was that what a lot of people may not be aware of is that many spices only grew in very particular parts of the world and nowhere else. So the true Sri Lankan cinnamon only came from Sri Lanka. Cloves and nutmeg, those trees only grew on the Indonesian spice islands, just a couple of islands, uh, nutmeg in uh, Bandanera and cloves in Todore and Tanate, a couple of tiny islands. So, of course, the spice trade was a very lucrative trade. There, the, the, initially the Portuguese, then the Dutch, then the English – um, made huge profits out of the spice trade, going across the Indian Ocean, getting the cloves, getting the nutmeg, whatever, taking them back to the major markets of Europe. Spices were considered to be luxury items for most people. Uh, you probably couldn't have access to a spice if you were fairly poor. Um, you, you could have access to the spices that grew where you lived but if you were in, say, 12th century England and you wanted peppercorns, you would probably have to purchase them one by one. <laughs> and you hear the term a peppercorn rent, which today means a very cheap rent, which actually in 12th century England, some landlords would demand that rents were paid in peppercorns rather than currency. So the Dutch East India Company was actually the first corporation in the world to be created where people could buy shares in a company. So that all modern company law is almost, you could say, based on what happened with the Dutch East India Company. And then not too long after that, the English East India Company. And of course, these things led to a lot of conflict. Um, there were amazing things where, you know, the Dutch and the English would be at each other's throats. Um, the uh, a whole issue happened when the English got control of the Indonesian Spice Islands, which the Dutch lost. Now, the Dutch made a huge amount of money out of this, the golden age of Holland and the tulip craze and things like that. They were all funded by the wealth that came in as a result of the spice trade. So what actually happened was that uh, a guy called Peter Stuyvesant, who was the governor of New Amsterdam, which we now as Manhattan, he wanted to get back, the Dutch wanted to get back their um, uh, Indonesian spice islands so they could get back to the monopoly of the clove and nutmeg trade. So they entered into a deal with the British and they swapped the island of Manhattan for a handful of islands in the Indonesian archipelago under a treaty. <laughs> now, of course, they thought they'd got back their monopoly, but there was a very enterprising governor of Mauritius called Pierre Poivre, translates to Peter Pepper. 
he successfully cl- uh, uh, smuggled cloven nutmeg seedlings out of the Indonesian archipelago so they could be grown out of their country of origin. That was the end of the monopoly. <laughs> so there were things like that. Chilies. Now, we all think chilies are everyday items, but if people think about it, just try to cast your mind back and imagine India 500 years ago without one single chili. No chilies in India 500 years ago. No chilies in India, in, sorry, in China. No India, uh, no chilies in um, uh, uh, um, Spain. No chilies in so many other parts of the world, but they were in the Americas. So Columbus was sailing west to get to the Indonesian spice islands because he looked at the maps and he thought, look, rather than going down around the Cape of Good Hope all the way across the Indian Ocean, sailing um, from west to east, be much easier to just sail east towards, uh, sorry, sail west towards the Indonesian spice islands. But he didn't get to them. He bumped into the Americas. And, of course, when he got to the Americas, he didn't find cloves, nutmeg, pepper, uh, cinnamon, anything like that. What he found were things with no commercial value, such as chilies, chocolate, potatoes, tomatoes, tobacco, (laughs) and of course the rest is history. So what they did when they saw chilies, they thought, oh, these are hot like pepper. So they called them pimenton, which is Spanish for pepper. And that's why even today, Many, many chilies are referred to as peppers. So people will say, oh, this recipe says red pepper. And does that mean a red peppercorn or what does it mean? And of course, it means uh, a chili, member of the capsicum family. And then what happened with chilies, which was fascinating, is that really for the first time in history, no matter what socioeconomic group you belong to, you could get an interesting spicy hit by using chilies because they were a plant that was easy to grow, a very prolific plant. Anyone who's grown chilies will have noticed that birds love to eat the ripe pods and hence spread the seeds in their droppings. So it was really quite amazing the way chilies really went around the world like wildfire. And up until about 40 years ago, the biggest volume trade in spice in the world was pepper. And now that's been overtaken by chili. <laughs> we love the culture, of course, um, and we do do some historic things. So we go to, we do very often go to the Taj Mahal, and we go to places like Fatipur Sikri and uh, Jaipur, Budapur, that sort of area. And when we're in the north, we're focusing very much on the culture, and of course, very much in the food, because the variety of food in the north is quite amazing. And then we go down to the south, and the south, that's the real spice mecca when it comes to actually seeing the spices. So we take people to see a pepper plantation, so they can see the pepper vines, they can see how the pepper's harvested. Um, Generally, in those plantations, there will also be nutmeg trees, clove trees, very important Indian spice, which is native to India, is cardamom, um, member of the ginger family. And so we see the uh, cardamom plantations. And the interesting thing about the spice trade is that the majority of these plantations are not absolutely enormous broadacre monoculture. There are still many, many, many individual Indian farmers who will grow a range of spices 
not just one particular variety. And, of course, to actually go and meet these people and meet their families and that sort of thing is is really wonderful. And then we will usually get into uh, a processing facility, which generally tourists can't do, but we get into a processing facility so people can actually see, you know, a bit of the nuts and bolts of what happens in the spice trade. Um, and, yeah, it's very interesting. And the lovely thing is that, Everyone's sort of pretty like-minded. They've come with a common interest. So, you know, the tonality of the group is pretty good and we generally have quite a bit of fun (laughs) as well and uh, enjoy just uh, everything about India. Yeah. So, there's no doubt there's a lot to know about spices and herbs, but there are so many ways to share information. How does Ian go about educating his customers? I think what I try to do is... um, mostly probably through my books um, and in the Spice and Herb Bible, is when I talk about a spice, I talk about its origins, its history, how it's grown, how it's processed. Because I feel if someone has a fully understanding of a spice, then they will get more enjoyment out of using it. And very importantly, how it will balance with other spices. So, you know, everyone's over the moon about turmeric at the moment and how wonderful it is. And it is. It's great spice. But you smell turmeric and you think, oh, gee, you know, it's a bit earthy. You know, is it really a flavour that you like? The minute you start to combine it with a bit of cumin, coriander, seed, um, uh, um, uh, ginger, paprika, anything like that, then it absolutely comes to life. So I think what I want people to understand is, yeah, where spices come from um, and what a particular spice is all about, how all these things happen, because you just see something in a jar. And I think the reason we did our first, took our first group to India in 1991 was we were talking to someone about spices, of course, (laughs) and Liz was saying, you know, People just see peppercorns in a bottle or a packet, but they don't really know where they come from. What makes a peppercorn black? What makes a white peppercorn different to a black peppercorn? And what about a green peppercorn? Wouldn't it be great to show people? Funnily enough, the guy we were talking to was a travel agent who specialised in India. And he said, oh, I could help you organise a tour to take people. (laughs) And that was how it all started. We've done about... um, 17 tours since then. Herbie's trades in dried herbs and spices, but that doesn't mean Ian will diss the fresh stuff. What are the differences between the stuff in the garden or the greengrocer and the stuff in packets? And how do you know when to use what? Fresh herbs are absolutely fantastic. And although we don't deal in fresh herbs, it is great that there are so many fresh herbs available to people now. So you can buy them in supermarkets. Um, you can get them in you know, lots of green grocers and specialty food stores. And the main thing about fresh herbs is that with a fresh herb, you have what we call the very fragrant, volatile top notes. So you take some coriander and crush it or some mint and you smell that. Now, what you're smelling are these very top volatiles. They're very fresh. They're very light. And in the main, fresh herbs should always be used 
in dishes that are either not being cooked, so, you know, you're putting them through a salad, they're, they're used, being used as a garnish, or you use them in dishes that are not being cooked for a long time. So you would put them into scrambled eggs, an omelette, um, you would use them in stir fries. Anything that's cooked fairly quickly, you would always use a fresh herb in preference to a dried. Where a lot of people don't fully understand the difference is that a dried herb is not necessarily a substitute for a fresh herb. A dried herb is quite different to a fresh herb. Um, and just as a fresh vanilla bean has no flavour, but a cured vanilla bean has got an extraordinary flavour, then what happens with a herb, when it's dried, you are removing most of the water content and you are concentrating the volatile oils in the cell structure of the leaf. So what you have is something that is very stable. It's very pungent. It's probably on average three to four times stronger by volume than a fresh herb, because of course it's had all that water removed. And with a dried herb, you will find that the flavor will infuse readily into the food that you're cooking and it will be the best thing to use in something that's cooking for a longer time. So soups, stews, casseroles, anything that's cooking for a longer time, dried herb is always the best to use. Because if you use a fresh herb, two things. First of all, you're not going to get a release of the flavours as effectively because they're all bound up with water. Secondly, you will find that you, for the heat of cooking, will flash off those lovely, fresh, volatile top notes that you want. So say, for instance, you've made a spaghetti bolognese and you've used dried herbs in the spaghetti bolognese to get that beautiful depth of flavour, but of course you want the flavour of fresh basil and oregano in there as well, then add them in about the last 10, 15 minutes at the most of cooking, and then you get the boast of best best of both worlds. So you get the depth of flavour, but you get the beautiful freshness. So there's a big difference between the two. I often say to people, you don't tend to make a cup of tea with fresh tea leaves. Depends on how you're using it. So, and even with mint. So you can make a mint tea with fresh mint, which is lovely and fresh and light, like you would get in Morocco. Or you make uh, a mint tea with dried mint, which is darker in colour, much, much stronger in flavour, quite different. So it's understanding that difference, I think, that, uh, that people need to, uh, to get a grasp on. And once you do that, then you find you get the best of both your fresh and your dried herbs. Spices can seem complicated if you're not used to them. Which spice, how much, and when do you add it? Herbie steers us onto the right spice road. People generally don't make too many mistakes, mistakes when it comes to using spices. Um, probably the biggest one is that if they're working on a recipe, they should always to some degree trust their own judgment because spices are very strong. And what they need, what people need to understand with a spice is smell it before you use it. I've always said, you know, your sense of smell is the most powerful sense you've got. Smell a spice every time you use it. That will help you recognise the spices you're using, but it'll also help you realise that it's as fresh as it should be. So smelling it is very important. I think if you smell a spice like 
cloves, for instance, and you notice that it's very strong, just look at the recipe and think, is that the right amount? Don't be frightened to use a bit less if you're not absolutely sure, because for people to gain an understanding of the spices and how they work, it all comes from experience. And the more you use them, the more comfortable you feel with them. And by smelling them every time you've used them, you become an instinctive cook. So you're making that particular dish and you think, oh, now that's interesting. There's no cumin in the recipe, but a little bit of ground cumin would really just work beautifully in that. Um, think of, um, you know, putting something like uh, ducker uh, on a sandwich with honey. <laughs> now, what's what's in ducker that gives it its very distinct flavour? It's cumin. <laughs> so uh, cumin and honey going together? Yes, go beautifully. Um, so they're the sort of things that be prepared, I suppose, to experiment a bit. But also, yeah, maybe if you're not too sure, start with a smaller amount uh, and then you'll find it um, it will work well. Of course, the other important thing with spices is storage. They should always be stored away from extremes of heat and light and humidity. And if a spice is losing its flavour, you don't just use more of it. Because what happens is that <clears throat> if the spice is very old and you use, say, twice as much because it doesn't seem to have much aroma left, then what will happen is you'll use, you're losing a lot of the, the more delicate flavour notes that are in that spice, but the deeper base notes that are in the oleoresins will not have changed a lot. So you could end up making the dish bitter if you just use a lot more because the spice is fairly old. Recommendations are that um, when it comes to usage, whole spices we tend to use when we want to infuse them into a dish, but we don't necessarily want to discolour that. Um, a good example would be perhaps um, if we think of pickles where you see the bits of allspice berries, the mustard seeds, the, the broken up bits of bay leaf and all those sort of things you'll see in a jar of pickles, but the pickling liquid is still clear. Now, if you use ground spices, the liquid would be muddy. So when it comes to usage, we'll generally use a whole spice when we want to infuse the flavour, but we'd use a ground spice if we're making something like a curry where we want the spices to be part of the curry gravy. We're putting a rub onto something that we're cooking on the barbecue. Naturally, it'd need to be ground. It wouldn't, wouldn't be whole. The other thing I recommend is that if it's a spice you don't use very much of, so say it's something like cloves, then rather than buying whole cloves to start into the Christmas ham once a year and then ground cloves to use in your more regular cooking, just buy the whole cloves and grind what you need because you're only going to need probably half a teaspoon, quarter of a teaspoon for most recipes. But if it's something like cumin, ground coriander, ground fennel seed, chilies, all those things, definitely buy the ground one because you'll find that you're spending so much time grinding, you know, two, three teaspoons, tablespoons of spices, you're much better off buying the ground. Just make sure that they're well within their best before date. And I'll talk about that storage in a minute too. Um, but if they're well, you buy ground spice, it's well, well within its best before date, it will be absolutely fine. You don't have to grind every single spice yourself to get the best result. So you've got your spices. 
But how do you store them for long-lasting flavour and aroma? So I mentioned earlier with storing spices, they should be stored away from extremes of heat and light humidity. Now, what happens over a period of time is that, of course, that the volatiles will gradually evaporate out of the spice. And one of the biggest enemies, of course, is, is oxygen, air. So airtight packaging is absolutely critical. That's very important to maintain the the flavour. When it's a whole spice, it will hold its maximum flavour profile for at least three years, possibly longer, if you've stored it well. Um, it'll be quite okay after that period of time. I even have some cinnamon quills that are five years old and they're absolutely fine. Um, and it's just because of the way they've been stored. Now, once the spice is ground, though, the grinding breaks up the cell structure, starts to release the volatile oils. And as any of us know, when you grind spices, part of the pleasure of grinding your own spices is the beautiful aromas that come up. And when the spice is ground, of course, the best before period becomes less. And depending on the spice, that probably comes back to somewhere between 12 to 18 months um, for a ground spice. So if it's a ground spice you use a lot of, as I said, just make sure it's well within the best before date that's on the pack and it should be fine. And there's also a lovely little myth that I'd like to share. <laughs> How many times have you heard people say, oh, if your spices are a bit old, just heat them in a pan to bring the flavour back. Uh, where's it coming back from? <laughs> I think it's just a psychological thing. You heat them in a pan so you get a bit of smell coming off and you think, oh, yeah, you know, but you're not bringing any flavour back to them. You're not, you're not improving them at all. Um, when it, when, oh, yes, I'll talk a minute about roasted spices too. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you're not bringing any flavour back. So the easiest way to check what a spice is like is put a tiny little bit in the palm of your hand. You can do this with dried herbs as well. Uh, a little tiny little bit in the palm of your hand, rub it with your thumb, smell it. The heat, the warmth of the palm of your hand helps to release aromas. Rubbing it breaks up a little bit more and you'll get a good idea as to whether that's smelling as good as it should. And again, another reason for smelling your spices every single time you use them so that you are becoming more and more familiar with them. Um, you will sometimes hear people say, oh, you should always roast your spices before you use them to bring out the flavour. Wrong. Roasting spices changes the flavour. So what you do is you roast a spice when you want to modify or change the flavour from the unroasted. As an example, when you're making an Indian curry, you would tend to roast the majority of spices that are going in because the roasted spices will become a little bit darker in colour, a little bit richer, deeper in flavour profile. But say I was making a Moroccan tagine using Razel Hanout, there is no way in the world I would roast that because in the Razel Hanout, what I'm wanting to get are all those beautiful top notes and the freshness that you get from the fennel seed, the freshness that is in actually uh, cumin when it's not roasted. Um, so... It depends very much on the flavour that you want. It's not just a categorical thing, oh, you should roast your spices. Definitely not. 
depends on the recipe that you're cooking and the flavour profile that you want. Um, if you're making an Italian dish and you're using fennel seeds, no way in the world would you, you roast those. But for an Indian dish, yes, a lot of them you would roast the fennel seeds. So, yeah, it depends on the flavour profile that you're looking for. Australia has numerous Indigenous herbs and spices. Ian talks about his encounters with Australian spices and why he thinks they might just be Earth's oldest plants but can be used as exciting contemporary food. Yes, yes, these are, of course, quite fascinating. And what's fascinating about them is that they could very possibly be the oldest plants on Earth. <laughs> um, and the other interesting thing is that the history of their culinary use seems to be very patchy and hard to really get a handle on. Um, from what I've understood, and I've spent some time out in cent Central Australia with some Aboriginal women harvesting bush tomato and doing a few things and talking to them, and they tended to usually use most of the native herbs and spices, uh, either they would consume them for their pharmaceutical benefits. Their, you know, uh, bush tomatoes very high in vitamin C, for instance. Um, things like the native pepperberry is has fairly strong antimicrobial properties and would be rubbed onto wounds. Um, so there are lots of uses like that. But in terms of actually using them to flavour some food that's being cooked, the closest I could get to that being done was. Um, choosing different types of mulga wood to burn to give a different flavour. But in terms of actually rubbing a spice on or using a spice to add flavour, there's very limited um, uh, evidence of that. So what we've got are possibly the oldest spices in the world, but very possibly the newest ones in terms of being added to dishes and I think that that's what makes them so fascinating. And I think one of the big problems that they've had, and this is a personal view that everyone won't agree with me about, <laughs> um, is that I think there's been too much focus on bush tucker. Um, because these, to me, these flavours are flavours in their own right. They don't have to be bush tucker. Uh, when we stud cloves into the Christmas ham, we don't say we're doing Indonesian cooking. And I nearly always now use lemon myrtle instead of lemongrass. I prefer lemon myrtle to lemongrass. I use it in spice blends. Um, I use a lot of native spices in our blends, but generally not to say that these particular blends are bush tucker. It's because the inherent flavour in that particular native spice works particularly well with the other spices that it's blended with. Um, I make a roast vegetable herb mix, which is a very conventional sort of mix with herbs in it. Uh, but I also use wattle seed, because wattle seed gives that lovely extra depth of flavour when you're uh, cooking roast vegetables. So my view of the world is they need to be looked at for their own intrinsic flavours and don't feel you've got to be restricted to making bush tucker. What you're doing is you're using them to flavour all sorts of different foods. And the other thing too is these are very ancient plants. They've got very strong flavours because they've developed these um, 
uh, various flavors to protect themselves from insect and um, animal attack. And so for that reason, the flavors are very strong. And I know a lot of people who have been first introduced to a lot of the native herbs and spices have just simply dismissed them and said, oh, don't like them, the flavor's too strong, whatever. But you could say the same thing for cloves and cardamom if you didn't use it the right way. Um, and the other interesting thing is that, to my knowledge, except for some things that are very possibly annuals, some of the tuber um, root things that, uh, that the native people grow, um, most of the trees, they have not changed for hundreds of thousands of years. And so, you know, most plants that we consume now have been bred in different ways. They've been bred to have a sweeter flavour. They've been changed in some way. But most of these plants have not been changed. I would reckon that um, a pepperberry plant today is probably the same as it was 60,000 years ago. <laughs> so... To me, that's pretty special in a lot of ways too. With so many aspects to his life in herbs and spices, Ian Herbie Hemphill might be writing, travelling, talking, selling, sourcing or sharing on any given day. What does he love about what he does? Well, first of all, I find, still find everything to do with Herbs and spices fascinating. I, I find it's interesting. You're always finding out something new. You're finding out, a, not really finding any particularly new herbs and spices, but you're finding out about the different ways that people use them. So the more you talk to people from different cultures, you find that they use a spice perhaps in a way that you'd never thought of. Um, that's interesting. I think the other thing that we really like is the fact that we have a I reckon a pretty good close relationship with our customers. So although we did move from Roselle, we had to we closed the shop about six years ago, um, but we do have a retail shop area at our factory on the Central Coast. And I'm amazed at the number of our old regular customers who from Sydney who were, or from other parts, even from interstate, who if they're up in the Central Coast area will call in and see us. And I think Part of um, what makes us uh, love this business is just, you know, we, we have great interaction with other people. And, of course, I do have to say we have wonderful people working for us. We've got, uh, we've got a lady who's been with us for 20 years. We've got another one who's been with us for 15 and probably the average of the staff we employ besides some students who come and work for us during their um, school, during their university holidays, besides them, Average period people have been with us is probably around about eight to 12 years. So having, you know, wonderful people who, who work for you is really important part of the business too. Herbs and spices make life better. And there's no one better than Ian Herbie Hemphill to explain why. Whether he's leading a food tour in India or concocting a new bolognese spice mix for Australians, He's an enthusiastic ambassador for flavour. This is The Producers, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm Danny Vallant. Stay tuned as we talk to some of Australia's best farmers, makers and growers. Follow us on Instagram at Producers Podcast or contact us via deepintheweeds.com.au.